Uh, if, if you're not aware, we are going to be continuing our sermon series through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to uh, ask you, please, uh, to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And I will invite you, if you're able to, please stand for the reading of the Word of God. These are the words of the living God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, you are majesty. Father, you are glorious. Father, you are supreme. Father, O Creator, we are your creatures. O dear God, let us be humbled by the knowledge of the holy. O dear God, let us rejoice and let us tremble to be called into your light that you would be the God of our salvation. Lord, I ask for your grace this evening. I ask for, for the power, for the filling of your Holy Spirit as I, as I proclaim these eternal words of yours. God, I just pray that these things would have an impact not only on my soul, on, on all those who listen, whether they be uh, present in the flesh tonight or, or listening over a stream of this. I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There is a very familiar uh, hymn that, that many of us know. It contains the words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like the sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Read to you these words because tonight we are going to be talking about peace. We're going to be talking about what it means to have peace and what it means to make peace. Of course, if you've been following along with this sermon series, we are now at the seventh Beatitude, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is yet another beatitude that could be considered active. We're talking about something that is flowing out of the person to whom God's grace has come. What we have been continually observing, and what was especially highlighted in, in our last sermon, is that God's grace is powerful. God's grace changes 
people. It does not leave people as they were. It does not leave people in their sin. When we look at the Beatitudes in order, everything that we have read previously is flowing towards this characteristic. In the first three Beatitudes, we observed chiefly brokenness over sin. As the Puritans would say, we must dig low before we build high. And in these three Beatitudes, we got at what is the very root of every man's problem. And that, of course, is sin. And what it is that God does to a person whom he sets his grace upon when he makes known to that person their sin. What happens? They're, they are poor in spirit. They're mourning. Eventually, they've become meek, not viewing themselves with any high, any lofty opinion, but looking at themselves, a man introspectively looking into his own soul and looking at who he is in comparison to God Almighty. Once they saw this vision, they began hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And Jesus says, such a man is blessed. For he shall be satisfied. God the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify this person, and we observe the mercy that they show other people. We see how their hearts are being made pure, they're walking in holiness. As Jesus elsewhere said, that whoever drinks of the living water he offers, as the scripture has said, out of his own heart will flow rivers of living water. And it is in the seventh beatitude that we are going to see is that this man whom God has changed is going to change the world. The grace which he has been given will not remain hidden inside of him like some shameful secret, but will flow out of the very center of his being, will flow out of his heart, will be seen in everything his hands touches, in every word that he speaks. The title that Jesus gives to such a person is the peacemaker. As I study these things, what I have come to realize is that, is that I think that this is a very misunderstood verse. Most of us, I don't think, truly realize what it is that Jesus here means when he says peacemaker. Well, if that is the case, then the question, of course, needs to be asked, what is a peacemaker? Who is a peacemaker? How can I identify what this is? The word translated as peacemaker here is urinopoios, and it is what is known as a hapax legomena. Now, what's a hapax legomena? A hapax legomena is, is a Greek phrase that simply means once read. In biblical studies, it refers to a word that appears only once, neither the Old or New Testaments. And so this is a, a unique word in the scriptures. Uh, when I was sort of trying to look into these things, the only references to this word that Jesus used here that I could find outside of the New Testament were other Christian sources. However, a, a very similar word is used in the form of a verb in Colossians chapter 1 to refer to Christ making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, why do I give you this uh, lesson in, in semantics? Well, just as when we were studying what it is to be merciful, we realize that the ultimate example of who a merciful person is was Jesus, our merciful and faithful high priest. What I think we realize is the top and supreme example of who a peacemaker is, is also Jesus. Colossians says, for in him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As a matter of fact, when we look across our entire Bibles, both Old and New Testaments, although the particular word translated as peacemaker is used only once, the idea and the concept of peace is woven all throughout the pages of Scripture. The story of redemption, the story of your Bibles, begins with peace in the Garden of Eden, and it ends with peace in eternal glory. It has been said that Scripture contains over 400 direct, explicit references to peace. And the Old Testament background is much wider than perhaps what we would think when it comes to defining what it is that peace really means. The reason why I say I think we misunderstand this verse is because I think that we in our modern tongue have a very lame idea of what peace is. You know, we think like, you know, peace, man, we think like the cessation of you know, conflict, like I'm just, you know, calm, I, I, you know, I'm in a serene sort of mood. We think of that as, as peace, and, and certainly peace contains those elements. Uh, peace, you know, means tranquility, it means serenity and, and, and all of those things. But it does not mean merely those things. It does not only mean those things. You've likely heard the Hebrew term shalom. It is used over 230 times in the Old Testament. And oftentimes the term is simply translated as peace, but in many cases it is translated as, as welfare or even prosperity. So the Hebrew concept of shalom has more to do with just you know, calmness and, and tranquility. It refers to well-being, well-doing. Well it, it, it is a broader term than just that. In the Old Testament, a person would ask you, you know, is it shalom with you? Is it well with you? In the book of Leviticus, God promises the Israelites that he will give them peace, he will give them shalom as a blessing should they be obedient to his law. As a matter of fact, listen to this passage from Leviticus 26. The Lord says, If you walk in my statutes... And observe my commandments and do them. Then I will give you your rains in the season. And the land shall yield its increase. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. And the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace. I will give shalom in the land. And you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept. And you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I know that's a lengthy citation, but I read it because I think that passage right there from Leviticus most clearly expresses what it is that shalom means. Does it refer to tranquility? Does it refer to ease, calmness, serenity, those types of things like we normally think? Well, yes, it does, but it means so much more than that. We read in this passage about God granting the people fruitful harvests, abundant crops, eating their bread to the full. We read about having success over their enemies, five chasing away a hundred, a hundred chasing away ten thousand. We also read about fertility and abundance of children. All of these things are promised to the Israelites should they be obedient to God's laws, and it is contained within this idea of shalom, God giving shalom to the land. Now, least some of you should think that I'm going full-on prosperity gospel. The final blessing named here, which I think is the chief, I think is the highest of the blessings God promises is one that the prosperity preachers are not going to be interested in. And that is when God says, I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. You see, here's the reality. When we are talking about the, the Bible's concept of peace, when we are talking about shalom, the height of what it means to have that peace, to have that shalom, is to have peace with God. God being our God, we being His people. I love that phrase, I will walk among you. Because, you see, in the Garden of Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve. This blessed state was lost after the fall. And when God promises this to the people of Israel, here we get a shadow of this thing being fulfilled. Then we wonder, how is it that God, who is spirit, who is invisible, who is without a physical body, could ever walk among his people? You know where I'm going, but we will get to that in time. Well, we see we fast forward to the book of Isaiah, and in Isaiah chapter 9, we have what is one of my favorite passages in all the scripture. Unfortunately, it has become known as the Christmas passage. And just like we sang that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and I, and I try to emphasize, you know, this is not just a Christmas carol. This is a song about our Messiah. This is a song about our King, King Jesus. This is truth for all time. The same thing applies here. Uh, sometimes I think when we get those familiar Bible verses that we've heard so many times, we, they can sort of lose their meaning. They can become like just like sounds and syllables. And so just listen to this passage from Isaiah and pretend it's the first time that you've ever heard it. The prophet says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a prophecy to the people of Israel concerning Israel's Messiah. And it says that he, the one, the child that is born unto us, the son that is given, that he shall be called Prince of Peace. And yes, the Hebrew word there is shalom. So now you know what a, a, a prince is. A prince, you know, a, the son of the sovereign ruler of a kingdom, has a authority himself and, and all this type of thing. And so that is who the Messiah is. He is the, the prince of peace. He is the siar shalom. Siar shalom, the prince of peace. And the prophecy also says that of the increase of his government and of his shalom, there shall be no end. And by the way, this is a promise that begins its fulfillment from the very time that this particular child is born. Isaiah says, from this time forth and forevermore. And what's also fascinating is that you remember when we were reading in Leviticus about shalom, God promises that he would walk among his people and I asked that rhetorical question, how could God who is spirit, God who is invisible, walk with his people? Well, Isaiah contains another prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Written hundreds of years before Christ, and as Matthew explains, this means God with us. And you see, I just love this. Because we, we put all of these things together, we, we take the pieces of the puzzle and, and we, we arrange them, we read, we are told of a virgin who is going to conceive, bear a son, they shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah also says that there will be a child born who will be called Siar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. And in Leviticus, when God promises peace, when he promises shalom, part of that blessing is that he will walk amongst his people. And so all of these things are related. They're so masterfully interwoven throughout the pages of Scripture, almost as if this book was written by God. And, and of course, these promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Israel's Messiah. The Christ, Jesus, who is God incarnate, who physically walked the earth, and who is said to make peace by the blood of his cross. Now that's a striking phrase, is it not? Making peace by the blood of his cross. I want you to think about that. What is more unpeaceful? What would be the very opposite of, of shalom, peace, prosperity, welfare, than the image of a bloody cross? You see, the wisdom of God proves foolish the wisdom of, of man in that it was by this ancient Roman torture device, the cross, a bloody cross, God made peace. Remember, shalom in its purest form means to have a restored, to have a right relationship with God Almighty. And so Jesus, he brings this out. He makes peace with the people by the blood of his cross. You have peace, you have tranquility, you have welfare, you have abundance, you have restoration with God by the blood of Jesus Christ's cross. Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so now, 
Looking again at Jesus' words in Matthew 5.9, with hopefully a better understanding of what peace is, notice that Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Remember, Christ also says in another place that when we drink of his living water, that out of our own hearts it will flow into the world. You see, when we experience this great, this wonderful blessing that is having peace with God, we don't keep it to ourselves. We seek to bring this peace out into the world. The peacemaker is the one who actively works to make peace, to bring the peace of God Almighty out into the world in which he lives. Which is why I said earlier in the sermon, the people whom God has changed are going to change the world. Why do I say this? Well, Zechariah chapter 9, Israel is promised that when their king comes riding on a donkey, obviously something that is fulfilled in Jesus' life, that when he comes, he will speak peace to the nations. Plural, by the way, not just to Israel, but to all nations, that his rule shall be from sea to sea. The reality is that Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, said that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And he exercises this authority by means of his church, by means of his people, saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, then how? How then is this great peace going to sweep across the world? The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because through the blood of the cross, Jesus makes peace with sinners. Then those sinners become saints and those saints become peacemakers. They actively work to bring God's peace to others, the world around them. And as individual sinners are saved, the cycle continues. And just as Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, starts off as one of the smallest seeds in the world, grows into a mighty large tree. The kingdom of heaven sprouts out of one small nation, Israel, and spreads over the entire globe. And you say, that's fantastical. You say you don't believe that. You're sitting right now in Vermilion, Ohio, just off the shore of Lake Erie. You know what was going on 2,000 years ago when Jesus said these words? You had the pagan religions of, of the American Indians, but you had no light of the gospel. As a matter of fact, this land was not even known about to the people to whom Jesus was speaking. And yet here we are 2,000 years later, and I'm standing here talking to you about being under the lordship of the king of Israel. If you don't think that God keeps his promises, then you're just not seeing things. And I realize that most of my beliefs about the world and about the future are much more optimistic than most people's and that's because I spend more time reading my Bible than watching the news and it has this like wonderful effect on me and so the reality is I realize you know Pastor Cliff was talking this morning if you're in Sunday school with me we were talking about some things the reality is we are living in a dark time right now uh, in our culture right now we are not living in a time of peace we're not living in a time of shalom. There is so much insanity. There's so much unrest. There's so much sin that has overtaken this world. But you see, what is the Christian message amidst all of this? Is the Christian message to hide in a bunker somewhere, to, to close ourselves off from the world, to do what 
the monks and the nuns of, of, of yesteryear have, have done? Of course not. Of course not. It was never commanded in Scripture to, to do some of the things that we saw in the monastic movement. It was never commanded for God's people to hide away from the rest of the world. Jesus says you don't put a basket over a lamp and ye are the lights of the world. Now go, therefore, let your light shine. You see, it's not that we keep our Christianity and we keep you know, our faith and, and, our, and our Bible in this circle over here and then the culture, politics, the world is this circle over here. No, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Unilateral sovereignty. Go, therefore, make disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teach this world to obey the law of God. You see, in this world of, of all this insanity that we see in the news and, and on television and, and around us, what is the Christian message? What is the Christian's responsibility? It is to be the peacemaker. Because Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We must seek to bring the peace, the shalom, the serenity, and the welfare and the blessing of God to our fellow creatures. The Bible promises that this will happen, by the way, because the Bible says that Jesus will speak peace to the nations. He will do that. The question is, are we going to believe him? And are we going to be obedient to the call he's placed upon our lives? Now, I realize you say, well, Logan, I'm not a preacher. I, that." And, and obviously we're not all preachers. That is a special and unique calling God only gives to some men. But remember, all Christians have their own unique callings. The Latin word vocation uh, uh, sort of comes into vogue around the time of the Protestant Reformation. And when the Reformers talked about an individual's vocation, vocation did not mean job. It meant calling. You see, the reformers did not believe that you know, a carpenter goes into his wood shop and, 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 and builds a, a bench because it's what he has to do. The reformers believed that a carpenter goes into his wood shop and builds a bench because that is what God Almighty has called him to do. That is his calling. That is his vocation. And all Christians have a primary calling and a secondary calling. What's the primary calling? To be obedient to the law of God. And our secondary calling is different for all of us. Some of you are laborers, some of you are, are teachers, white-collar workers, some of you are mothers, fathers, grandparents, whatever it is that God has uniquely called you to in this life. You have the responsibility to be a peacemaker in that calling. If you're a parent, disciple your children. When you're in the workplace, seek to make God's truth the topic of your conversation. Conduct your business in a, in a Christ-honoring way, not engaging in, in shady business practices, not cheating people out of their money, not being dishonest, but in all that you do, do all to the glory of God. And you see, usually when people are, are preaching on this verse, you know, we're talking about you know, peacemakers, we're talking about you know, settling disputes between other people, making sure people are not fighting, and of course making sure that we are not uh, causing fights with others, and all of that is well and good. But, you, but what you have to remember is that true peace amongst 
brothers and sisters only can truly flow from hearts that God has changed, from regenerated hearts. As Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. And so what I'm saying is, as we bring the light of the gospel to individual people, the blessing of peace that is attached to it is going to flow down into all of those other areas. It is going to flow into your relationships. It is going to flow into how you treat one another. And so this brings me to my next point, and that is that there is a huge difference between being a peacemaker and being a peacekeeper. I'm going to explain what I mean in this way. The very first thing that I thought about when I sat down and began really studying this verse to prepare this sermon, the very first thing that I, I thought about was the fact that just a few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now this right there is one of those things in Scripture which if you take the most simplistic and surface level reading possible would seem like a contradiction. But for Christians, it is a fundamental principle that the Bible does not contradict itself, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, 1 Corinthians 14.33. But there's a thing. God is a God of peace. See, our shalom, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. And, and he, yet, just a few chapters later, he says, I have not come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword. Well, how, how do we harmonize those things? What makes things even more interesting is that we've already observed what is the means by which God makes, brings peace into the world. Well, Colossians 1 says Jesus makes peace by the blood of his cross. So it is the gospel that ultimately creates peace in the world in which we live. But that, that is the thing there. The blood of his cross. What is more unpeaceful than a bloody cross? You see, the very fact of the cross proves that not all people to whom the gospel comes We'll receive it with acceptance. We'll receive it with peace and shalom. And so in Matthew chapter 10, the context is Jesus sending out his disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And so there, there's the thing that we all have to, have to realize. What we realize is that the ultimate means of bringing peace into this world is also something that is incredibly divisive. The fact is the gospel brings peace. The gospel makes peace between God and sinners and makes peace between men and men. That's why when Paul is talking about in Galatians, you know, the Jews and the Greeks and the slaves and the free, he says, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, all are one in Christ. Which is why racism is such a, a, a terrible, evil, wicked sin that we should all hate with a passion. Because if you're going to divide people based upon the melanin of their skin, you're missing the point of the gospel. The gospel transcends those things. It's not that you have a white church and that you have a black church. No, all are one in Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul believed. And yet this thing, which is so unifying, which has so much peace, it has serenity, it has shalom, the gospel is at the same time very divisive. 
Because Jesus says that fathers will be against their sons, mothers will be against their daughters, households, families, broken apart, separated by the gospel of the kingdom. The fact of the matter is, people will say, we shouldn't talk about doctrine, we shouldn't talk about truth, because doctrine divides. Jesus' answer to that would be, yes, it does divide. What was your point? So how can these things be? How can the same message of the gospel, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that, you know, it's a fragrance of life to life to some and a fragrance of death to death to others. The same fragrance. It's the same perfume. Yet to some, the smell is revolting and pugnant. And to, to others, it, it is sweet as, as roses. How can these things be? You see, these are things which lie in the secret will of God. As Jesus says in another place, in John chapter 6, Jesus is explaining the, the unbelief of the Jewish people. Uh, they have crossed land and sea to come to him, eating of the, when, when he takes the, the fish and, and the bread and, and he multiplies it, people flocking all over to receive this physical bread that Jesus offered, but they did not want the spiritual bread he offered. And so Jesus says, do not grumble amongst yourselves. And in John 6, verse 44, he says, no one can come to me. Just stop right there. Universal statement. No one can come to me. No one of their own will and volition can come to me unless they meet this condition. And what is the condition? Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. See, the reality is that those who are according to the flesh cannot please God. And so to raise someone from spiritual death unto spiritual life requires the same power which raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And the call of the Christian is to be the peacemaker, to strive to bring the gospel message to any and all creatures. But as, as Charles Spurgeon said, I can't lift up someone's shirt and see if there's an E stamped back there to see if they're elect or not. You see, our responsibility is to be faithful to God's call in terms of evangelism. And so this is why I said there's this huge difference between being a, a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. Because if Jesus is to be believed, which, you know, I mean, if you're a Christian, yeah, Jesus is to be believed. If Jesus is to be believed, the peacemaker is not necessarily going to make every situation peaceful. I mean, they killed Jesus. So you have to realize that. And if you don't believe me, look at verse 10. Just after Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, the very next thing he says is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So Jesus takes this person, he calls them a peacemaker, that they are striving to bring about peace into the world, and yet they are inevitably going to find themselves in contexts and situations where they're being persecuted, where things are completely unpeaceful. Just as Jesus brought about peace by the blood of his cross, it is a common saying and a true saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because you see, a peacekeeper, as opposed to the peacemaker, the peacekeeper, the peacekeeper is the type of person who is so averse to any and all kinds of conflict that they will refuse to say or do anything that may potentially offend or upset somebody. All they want to do is just, just keep the peace. I, 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 just don't, I just don't want any arguments. I don't want any disagreements. 
But is it not the case that this supposed peace they are keeping is nothing more than a false peace? Because God condemns us in his word. In Jeremiah chapter 6, he rebukes the people of Israel for saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And why was there no peace according to God at that time? Because of the sinful practices and abominations of the people. And so for those out there who would refuse to give someone the gospel they so desperately need, who will refuse to make known to people their need of a Savior for the guise of keeping the peace, do not think for a second that Jesus is talking about you when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers. For you are not a peacemaker, but a peacekeeper. You're saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And do you not see the abominations in our land, the murder of unborn children, a perverse sexual revolution, a complete hatred for the triune God, swarms of idolatry? Do you look at these things and... And do you not see that there is no peace in the land? And what is a Christian called to do? Give up? Run away? No. We are not called to keep in our own little Christian bubble. We are not called to sit down in a basement somewhere and wait for Jesus to return. Our Lord, the Siar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, says that we are to be peacemakers in this world. And if you've truly tasted the living water, it shall flow out of your heart. And the Bible says that just as the water covers the sea, so shall the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth. Do you believe Jesus is going to fulfill that promise? Which means we need to be willing to offend other people. Now, a caveat needs to be made. There are obviously people under the name of Christianity who have nothing more than a foolish pride and, and who seek to use the Bible and God's truth as nothing more than a club to bash people over the head with. I am not saying we need to be those kinds of people. If you are purposefully trying to upset people for no reason, then there's like something wrong with you. Uh, the Christian's goal is never to purposely afflict other people. Uh, the Christian's goal is to make peace. You see, our desire is not just to upset the, the person we're bringing the gospel to. Our heart's desire is to make peace with them, that God, by his grace, would make peace with that individual. We would be united in Christ, just as there's no more Jew, no more Greek, no more free, no more slave, no more male, no more female, are one in Christ. That is our goal. And so, but what we have to understand is that message that we bring, the word of the cross, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You see, the message doesn't change. Some people, it's the same, like I said, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, same fragrance. The fragrance doesn't change. The ingredients don't change. Yet to some, it's a fragrance of death to death. To some, it's a fragrance of life to life. The word of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And how does that get worked out? How does that get determined? The working of God's grace in individual hearts. And so inevitably, although our heart's desire is to love all people who we meet and to bring peace to them, inevitably people who are enslaved to their sin are going to revile at our message of peace. Our good words are going to sound profane to them. And what is going to happen is that people who hate Jesus and who hate Jesus' messengers and hate Jesus' message are going to hate Jesus' messengers. 
And unless the Lord gives us massive revival, which He can and has the power to do, we may be going into a period of time in the history of the church where there is great persecution. They may, I mean, the reason why they want you, you know, they don't want you using cash anymore is so that whenever they want, they can flip off your bank account, they can fire you from your job as Lizzie Marbach was just fired from Ohio Right to Life, a supposedly conservative organization, fighting for the life of unborn children. And yet when Lizzie makes a tweet on, on, on Twitter saying that there's no hope outside of Jesus Christ, she gets fired from Ohio Right to Life. And Max Miller, a conservative house, uh, representative in the state of Ohio, tells her it's one of the most bigoted things he's ever read. So they're going to take away our children. They're going to take away our children, are you conspiracy theorists? Are you not reading the legislation that's being pushed? California right now, there's legislation on the books that in custody court cases that the judges are to decide the ruling on custody based upon whether or not the parents affirm the supposed gender of the children. And all of this stuff is, is, is happening. It's going to happen. And you say, I sound like a madman, and perhaps you are right. But here's the thing. I shouldn't say they will happen. I should say they may happen. Because God, God can, God, some of you don't believe this, but God can save the president. He can save the vice president. He can save, he can save all of Congress. He can Change their hearts. God can do this. I mean, I mean we, have to, we have to believe that. It, you know, my brother John right now is preaching through the book of Acts. And, and what does it say? It says that as the, the word is, is going out, that the word was changing the world. And it says that as many as were appointed unto eternal life heard the word and were saved. Do you not think that God can do the same thing in our day? But let's say that this period of persecution does come. Perhaps God may use something like this to strengthen and to purify His church. Perhaps there will be a great time of persecution and then a great revival afterwards, just as the greatest period of persecution in the history of the Christian church uh, towards the end of the 3rd and beginning of the 4th century was followed by the conversion of Constantine and Christianity becoming an accepted religion. I put it all into his hands. I put it all into his hands. My responsibility and your responsibility is to be faithful to his word. And so to quote, as we are thinking about going out, trying to be the peacemakers Jesus wants us to bring, bringing the message of peace out into this world, some are going to receive it, some are not. And so thinking about this, the great Puritan Thomas Watson writes, though we must be peaceable, Yet we are bid to contend for the faith, referring to the book of Jude. We must not be so in love with the golden crown of peace as to pluck off the jewels of truth. Rather let peace go than truth. The martyrs would rather lose their lives than let go the truth. And so what I want to say is we need to realize that the message of peace is also a message which is divisive. We need to understand that. We need to realize that the word of the cross is foolishness to some. It's uh, the power of God to others. We need to understand that. But what I want to say is, don't 
Don't go out there with a defeatist attitude. Don't go out there and just assume that, you know, the, that people aren't going to get saved or that, you know, great things aren't going to happen. Don't just, you know, the characteristic of the Calvinistic evangelist is that they just lazily throw out the gospel in, the, in a brutish manner and then when people don't respond, they just chalk it all up to the sovereignty of God. And, and you know, I'm not denying that such people exist, but they certainly do not represent the great Calvinistic evangelists of the past. You read Charles Spurgeon. You read George Whitfield. You read Jonathan Edwards. These were men who bargained and pleaded with sinners passionately to come to Jesus Christ. And why did they do so? Because they were Calvinists and believed that God can and would save his elect people. Just as the Apostle Paul endured all things for the sake of the elect. And so what I'm trying to tell you, brothers and sisters, is labor with hope. Labor with hope. As you strive to be a peacemaker in this world, do it with confidence. Do it actually and truly believing that God will use his word, will use his message, will use his servants to change hearts and minds, to establish peace and justice in all the earth. Because that's what the Bible says. It says that he is going to establish justice on all the earth and the coastlands are going to wait for his law. I believe what the scripture says there. And I realize that if you watch the news, there seems to be you know, no hope whatsoever. And it's easy to say with others that this world is just going to go to hell in a handbasket. I have sadly met so many Christians who just have no hope. All they want to talk about is how any day now they just want the, the rapture to come and, and to take them away and obliterate the earth. But the Bible never, ever tells us to be without hope. The whole reason the Bible tells us about the second coming and the end of the world is so that we can have hope in our lives. We are to be contented. We are to be joyous knowing that the God who said, let there be light when all was formless and void, He can do things with that same exact power in, in, our, in our day. He raised His own Son from the dead. We are called in any and every situation to trust in God's promises and actually believe that He will accomplish His purposes. If it is the plan and the purpose of the Siar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, to speak peace to the nations and that His peace shall never end, if that is what God wants to do, then let's just be so encouraged by that. And so, thinking more about what it means to have peace with God, I think Jesus gives us a bit of a hint when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God, I, I love that phrase. What does it mean to be a son of God? Obviously not in the same way Jesus is the son of God. But Ephesians chapter 1 says that in love, he, referring to God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, 
to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. To be called a child of God is a wonderful thing. John chapter 1 that says about Jesus when, when he comes into this world that he gives the right to people to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And that's a wonderful thing. And it is a special and unique privilege that belongs to all believers. There is this idea in our culture that all people are the children of God, but that's simply not the case. Those who are the children of God are those who have faith in God. Paul says that it is those who are predestined in Christ. And we have to remember that, in Christ. Jesus says, and this is what I was teaching on this morning, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so it's, it's very, very specific. It's having faith in the C.R. Shalom, in the Prince of Peace, having faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. This is something which applies to believers, to those who are led by the Spirit. And we are told that in Christ we have been adopted to God as his sons and his daughters. And what does that mean? Well, Paul says that one of the things is we cry, Abba, Father. And of course, with all these things, we see that there is a, a blessing that we receive in this life and one more fully in the age to come. You see, right now, as I stand here, I can call myself a child of God. Not that I hope to be called such one day or that I think if I work hard enough, I can earn it. But right now, as I speak, God has, by his sovereign grace, brought me into a right relationship with him. I am privileged to call upon him in times of need, in prayer. And I can read his word, and I can grow in my knowledge of him. I can grow in my relationship with him, and I know that his providence is ever governing and watching over my soul. This means that even when the Lord disciplines me, it is ultimately out of love. All things are being worked for my good, for God has called me according to his purpose and inspired within me a love for him. And you see, all of that has to do with what God has done for me. Don't think for a second that I believe that it was, you know, why do I, why am I a Christian and why is someone sitting right next to me not a Christian? Not because I'm better. Not because I'm more spiritual. Not because I made the right choices. I was smarter than them, more spiritual, did the right thing, said the right prayer, was baptized, or whatever. And, and, and they weren't, and I was better than them, so God saved me. No, 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 no. The Bible says I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I was following the, the power of the prince of the air. I, I, I was walking in darkness. I was in bondage and enslaved to my sin. And yet the God who shined light into darkness has shone a light into my own soul, calling me out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, God, by the blood of his cross, 
made peace with my soul. Shalom, peace, prosperity, welfare. I, when I lay my head on the pillow at night, I don't have to fear that if I you know, commit a mortal sin, I'm going to lose my state of grace. I don't have to worry that I'm going to fall away from the good shepherd because the good shepherd loses none of his sheep. I don't have to worry about that. I, I, I get to trust in God that he will lead and guide me all the way. No longer am I in bondage to my sin. No longer is the wrath of God abiding over me. The wrath of God that, that Logan Joseph Ramsey deserved was satisfied in the cross of Christ. But it is more than just that. For I am more than forgiven. I am restored. A new creation in Christ. And the Holy Spirit continues to witness and testify to me the truth of my adoption. And my heavenly Father never lets me down. He never errs. He is always there for me, doing what is best for me. And, and I don't say these things to, to have you look at me. What I, my point is, these are the words that all Christians get to say. All Christians get to say, I have peace with God. Not that because I'm a preacher, I'm like uh, upper class, like I'm you know, somehow more of a Christian than you are. No, 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 no. On Judgment Day, me and, and, and all of my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all going to stand before God clothed in the righteousness of the Son of God. That is wonderful. That inspires not only peace with God, but peace amongst fellow men. Is there nothing, you know, sadder than when there's divisions in the church? Nothing is sadder than that. Especially when so many of, of the things that divide us are, are so secondary. Are so secondary. Let us, let us think again about the unity we have in Christ Jesus. This is the promise of God to all Christians. You are no longer slaves. You are no longer in bondage to your sin. But you are the children of the Most High. And at the risk of sounding sentimental, He loves you. He loves you with the perfection of love. And of course, the fullness of this promise will be realized in the life to come. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Then he goes on to say, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, in Paul's mind, we have already received the spirit of adoption, and yet we wait eagerly for our adoption. It is this whole idea of the now and the not yet that we see so many times in Scripture, especially with these Beatitudes. And so though we currently are in a restored, in a right relationship with God right now, there will come a day in eternity when we are more restored with God than ever before, when we are more shalom than ever before. And is this not worth living for? Is this not worth dying for? Is this not worth being a peacemaker for? I tell you that the true child of God, to him there is nothing more desirous than to become more of a child of God when their bodies are redeemed in the last day. Do not be content 
with the perishing things of this world, but live for this, live for eternity, live for Jesus Christ, that you may die for Jesus Christ. As one sort of hillbilly song says, some say give me silver, others say give me gold. I say give me Jesus, for He satisfies my soul. The Puritan William Perkins says, In this age men make much ado to get good assurance of earthly purchases. But what madness is this? so greatly to regard momentary things and to have no care in comparison of our eternal inheritance, which we shall have assured unto us when we become the children of God. And let me tell you, all of these wonderful things that I'm speaking about, if, if by God's grace these things are intriguing to you, they come only by and through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way, there's no other truth, there's no other life, and no one has come to the Father except through Him. And it is my duty as a minister of Jesus Christ to call upon each and every individual to believe in the gospel. Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he personally bore your punishment in himself on the cross, that he was dead, that he was buried, and then on the third day rose again. I tell you at this very moment that if you believe in him right now at this very moment, you shall be called the son of God. God will grant you peace with him. Shalom. But this peace, it will not remain locked up inside of you. Rivers of it shall flow out of your heart, and you will be made a peacemaker, bringing the glorious gift you've received to this world around you. And it is a blessed thing to take part of this. The call upon each and every one of us is simply this, faith. And with that being said, I want to ask you to close with me in prayer. Father God, as we decline our period of worship tonight, Lord, I just pray that, that our spiritual sacrifices we've offered up have been pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. Oh, dear God, forgive us when we fall short. Forgive us when you're not as, as, as pleasing to you as we might be. Lord, Restore us always. Continue to grow us and to shepherd each and every Christian in this room. Dear God, may these words that we've studied tonight, may they not just remain locked up inside of our heads, but may they seep down into our hearts. May these things have an impact on us as they've been impacting the world for the past 2,000 years. It's in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, this Yar Shalom, we pray. Amen.